Hello, this is Pastor John Willingham of Doylestown Presbyterian Church. It's clear these days it's tough to make time. Schedules quickly become busy and calendars suddenly become full. To that end, DPC is excited to now offer this podcast channel, which will allow you to hear a recording of Sunday's sermon from that day's preacher. Whether you listen while taking an evening stroll, driving to and from the grocery store, or anytime you get a free couple of minutes, we hope it can allow for reflection and spiritual growth during your week. We also invite you to visit www.dtownpc.org to learn more about our church, our various ministries, and online giving opportunities. Thank you for tuning in. In his book, A View from the Zoo, veterinarian Gary Richman tells of how a newborn giraffe learns its first lesson about life. Typically, in the moment of birth, the calf will fall about 10 feet and will ordinarily land on its back. But in a matter of seconds, it has turned itself over with its feet underneath. And then it has its first glimpse of this world around it. It's at that moment that the mother stands directly over the calf. She takes a look, and then a minute later, she swings her long pendulous leg out and brings it back until she hits the calf, knocking it head over heels. If the calf doesn't stand up immediately, she keeps repeating that action. until finally this newborn wobbly stands up. It is then, Richmond says, that the mother does the most unusual thing. For instead of celebrating the newborn's accomplishment in whatever way a giraffe would do that, the mother instead knocks the calf again, causing it to fall once more. She does this because she wants the newborn to remember how to get up. For in the wild, there are lions and hyenas and jackals that would love to have a meal of a baby giraffe, and there's protection when the herd is together. And so the mother is trying to teach the calf this lesson, knocking it down to make it strong. I share that unusual fact from the animal world, not to suggest a a new model for parenting, (laughs) but instead to lift up a reality that I think is true for all of us with two legs, no matter what our age or place in life. Namely, that there can be these occasions for each one of us when it can feel as if we have just gotten knocked off our feet, sometimes repeatedly. And it can come in those moments when suddenly it feels like we've gotten everything together only to have an illness or injury to strike. In the very moment that we think we've got our household budget finally under control, it is then that this unexpected household expense can occur or maybe even lose our job. As a culture, we've been experiencing that dynamic now for well over 18 months, as only again this past week, a new variant 
of the COVID virus appeared. And in all of those kinds of ways, it can feel as if you and I are getting knocked down yet again, mostly in symbolic ways, requiring us once more to get back up on our feet. The psalmist, whose words we heard moments ago, would understand that sentiment. We're not really sure what was going on in the moment that he wrote those words, but we can hear this sense of desiring eagerly for a change. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, he begins. You who lead Joseph like a flock, stir up your might and come to save us. Whatever it is that is happening for him and for his community, he is now turning to God for help. As he concludes by saying, restore us, O God. Let your face shine so that we might be saved. If the psalm had ended with those words, we might have thought it was simply a prayer, like what you and I would offer in a moment when when we need a particular response from God, when when things are, are going badly and we want God to intervene. And certainly that was part of what the psalmist was doing. But but as those verses continue, it's clear, not only are the problems growing, but the psalmist acts as if he is speaking to the source of all their woes. How long, he continues, will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed us with the bread of tears. You have caused us to drink our tears. You have made us the laughingstock of all of our neighbors. And it is after that lament that he repeats those words, this time sounding almost like a command. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we might be saved. Our New Testament reading doesn't have that accusatory tone to it, but it does lift up similar kinds of questions. And it tells of a day when Jesus and his disciples are walking along and they happen upon a man who has been blind since birth. And one of the 12 says to Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, in one way, we certainly understand how when there are times of trouble, we immediately want to understand what caused it. And clearly, there are occasions along the way when when that cause and effect is apparent. So if one cheats on an exam, it's understandable while the final grade is an F. If we continue to ignore that blinking light on our dashboard and don't take it in for service, it really isn't a surprise if the car breaks down. Sometimes we can see exactly how it was that one thing led to the other. But the disciples are talking about a different kind of moment. Those kinds of occasions that happen along the way when the cause is more confusing. In that era, rabbis taught that God sent trouble to test us. And that if, in fact, we 
live up to it, that we'll be rewarded with long life. There is also this teaching based upon the biblical passage that tells us how the twins Esau and Jacob were wrestling in the womb. The ancients thought it was possible to sin even before birth. Both of those pieces of instruction are problematic for me. Not only because I don't believe God sends us our trouble, but I don't think it's possible to break God's will in utero. And instead, I'm convinced God is with us in every moment of life, walking with us as we move forward. Disciples didn't live with that kind of mindset, though. And so, in asking them this question, Jesus clearly rejects either the man or the parents as having been at fault. As he says, neither of them sinned. God, he was born blind so that he might reveal the works of God. As long as there is light, he said, we must work the works of God. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, Jesus' answer in that moment could raise the question of, are there hardships sent so that God's glory might be further revealed or somehow others might come to God? If Jesus were present, I think we would certainly want to ask more about that. And yet what is clearly present in his answer and what we know too is that when there are times of hardship, whether it's a single incident or something repeating, that as people of faith, it can naturally lead to questions. The Pew Research Group last month released a new study that spoke of Americans' reactions to all the hardship that we have experienced as a people in the last 18 months to two years. The writers point out that the respondents that they had talked to, that fully a quarter of those Americans had said that during all the struggles, pandemic and otherwise, that had been happening in our culture, that they have thought a lot about the meaning of life, about is there meaning in suffering? and why bad things happen. Perhaps some of you have been pondering those same questions. Well, this particular survey actually marked the first time the Pew Group had, in this systematic national survey, tried to measure people's faith in response to the hardships that we all have known. And so the authors set out the, the, some of the broad categories that typically are how we understand suffering. People may bring some of the suffering on themselves, they note, through poor choices or misguided actions. Other suffering may be caused by the way society is structured. Some may believe that suffering can arise as a punishment or a lesson from God or for some reason they cannot understand. Others may come to doubt God's existence because they cannot reconcile the fact that suffering exists with the idea that there is a kind and all-powerful God in control of the universe. And, of course, some suffering may occur randomly for no reason at all. 
The survey sought to gauge the response of Americans to those kinds of questions. And the title tells you the conclusion, namely, that the pandemic for the vast majority of Americans did not cause them to lose faith or change their relationship with God. Here's some of the particulars, though. 70% of those agreed with the statement that suffering mostly is a consequence of people's own actions or of the way society is structured. 80% in that survey said that suffering comes mostly from people and not from God. 50%, however, said that they believe that sometimes God allows suffering to continue for a purpose that is not yet clear, while only 16% said that the suffering caused them to question whether or not God was truly loving or just. Had he been asked, the psalmist would have been in that 16%. And yet the telling thing for me about his words is that even with this clear lament, even with this clear questioning of where God had been and what God was doing, there was this clear turning toward God by that believer. That even though he was accusing God of not paying attention and not acting in the way that he wanted, that he then in the very next breath turned to God asking for that kind of response. That even in the moment of feeling somehow they had been abandoned by God, he turned back to God as the source of comfort and direction. That might seem odd to us at first hearing. And yet, I think it actually demonstrates the abiding faith of that man of long ago. For even though he accused God of being angry with them, he knew that God was the one who could solve their woes. Even as he accused God of feeding them with the bread of tears, he knew God was the source of the healing and nourishment they needed. Even as he said, that God had made them the laughingstock of all of their neighbors, he knew that God was the only one who could change that. Thus, in the very moment of questioning what God had been doing, he, he revealed that God still is the only one to whom we can turn, demonstrating his faith and the best path for us, too. During the Thirty Years' War of the 17th century, Martin Rinkert served as a pastor in Eilenburg, Saxony, modern-day Germany. That community was invaded three times over those decades, and yet still it became the place where where refugees would, would go. And soon, the city was swelling with thousands who had been driven from their homes. As you can imagine, that influx 
also led to famine and disease and death. And apparently in 1647, Rinkert was the only pastor in that community, and in that year, he had 4,500 funerals, sometimes as many or 50 or 60 a day. And yet, it was in the midst of that circumstance that he wrote a hymn that we often sing in November. Now thank we all our God with hearts and hands and voices, who wondrous things hath done, in whom this world rejoices, who from our mother's arms hath blessed us on our way with countless gifts of love, and still is ours today. May we, on this second Sunday in the season of Advent, take our place with those believers of the past and acknowledge once again that one to whom we turn as we seek to get back on our feet. And as we do, to join in that lament and that prayer of long ago. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we, that we might be saved. Let us pray. We give thanks, O God, for the fact that nothing can break the bond of your love for us. May we act upon that truth in the fullness of our journey as you enable us to rise to our feet and to walk knowing that we never journey alone. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us on your journey of faith. Don't forget to check out www.dtownpc.org to explore all the ways DPC strives to be a bridge for Christ and a beacon of his love.